I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV on Twitter and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Derek Lowe. He's a drug discovery chemist and blogger, and you can find him on Twitter at Derek Lowe. Thanks so much for joining me today, Derek. Oh, glad to be here. What is most stalling the production right now in terms of the major vaccine companies that we know, J&J, Pfizer, and Moderna? Well, each one of them has a separate set of issues, but the two that are closest are Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, because both of those use the same platform, messenger RNA, and they've got a tricky formulation. And I think it's actually that formulation that is the bottleneck. Now, J&J has a totally different way of making the vaccine. And I think that their production is going to be a little bit easier. Let's zero in on Moderna and Pfizer, because it has been the contention of some in the science journalist community that there is a way to expedite the process. And this has also been a contention of political activists and advocates, which is that if you were to outsource this and deploy additional companies and give them the Moderna and Pfizer formula, we would be able to ratchet up production. But you have taken issue with that contention, right? Yeah, I really have, because it's not as simple as it sounds. The uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, as mentioned, have messenger RNA in them, and they have a very tricky formulation. The mRNA gets bound up with certain lipids, basically small greasy molecules, into extremely small particles, which are suspended in buffers. So it's going to be sort of a milky, creamy look to it. Lipid nanoparticles are what we call this kind of formulation. And getting those to happen the right way is, um, it's not trivial. So it's not a question of Pfizer and Moderna withholding the proprietary technology uh, as much as it is the creative design and the ingenuity and sophistication of it. Having said that, have Pfizer and Moderna been reluctant to attempt to share their formula with others? Well, no, not exactly, because um, it's interesting to see what they've done. Pfizer, for example, has announced a deal with Sanofi, another very large drug company, and Sanofi is going to start it looks like they're going to start manufacturing. They're definitely going to start um, like uh, finish and fill is what we call it, where you fill the vials and get those done under sterile conditions and get those shipped out. But I believe they may be manufacturing as well. And when you look at the kinds of deals that companies are making, it's only a very small club. It's basically the largest companies out there, which makes sense because if you've got some small outfit that says, hey, you know, inside of three months, we might be able to get 10,000 doses out the door. Well, that's great, but that doesn't make a difference. You want someone who can come in and get millions and millions of them out. And there's really only a very few companies in the world that can do it. In your estimation, are those companies being lined up, if you will, this is the vaccine assembly line, and deployed to the best of their ability because we know that the speed with which we are vaccinating currently is not 
up to date with the population that is ready to receive the vaccines. Right. Well, it's hard to say, you know, whether or not it's the best system that could ever be. It probably isn't, but it's uh, getting close to about as fast as you can get it right now. As I say, Pfizer has done a deal with Sanofi. Moderna bought an entire plant in Germany from another large pharmaceutical company. And that's kind of an instructive thing to look at because they they did this deal back in September. And this is a plant that had been used in the past to make vaccines. It was currently being used to make antibody therapies. And after about five months, Moderna is just about ready to begin to get production going there. So here's a company that already knows exactly what it's doing because it's their own process. And it's taken five months to get another plant off the ground. Is there a reason, Derek, that they did not dispatch or deploy an American uh, facility to be able to ramp up production uh, rather than outsourcing it to Germany? Well, they do have some American facility. They've got, they built a new plant of their own here in Massachusetts, up in a town called Norwood. But I think they needed more help on the European end. They have a partner in Switzerland, a very large outfit called Lanza, that's helping them out. But it looked like they needed more production over there. You don't want to have to ship the mRNA vaccines transatlantic or transpacific if you don't have to, because, of course, they have really demanding storage requirements, very low temperatures. We know that the Chinese and the Russians, uh, also the Indians, right. produced a different kind of vaccine, uh, not mRNA. And the American pharmaceutical companies and educational institutions that were all at work on this, uh, not one of them produced uh, an attenuated or inactivated virus like the Chinese or, or Russians. Well, the Russian one is actually an adenovirus vaccine, much like Johnson & Johnson. But you're right, there is a Chinese attenuated uh, attenuated virus vaccine. And there are companies in India that have been working on it. I think the problem was, was that these vaccines don't always work very well. Over time, I mean, the attenuated virus, and this is when you take the real live virus and sort of, well, mess it up. <laughs> to be technical about it, you treat it with heat or some sort of reactive chemical to kill it off but leave enough of its proteins there to where the body reacts to it. It's just sort of a wrecked virus. That has been something that's used a lot over the decades, but there have been a lot of failures over the decades too, where you give this to people and it just doesn't raise enough of an immune response. So I think a number of companies are like, you know what? We've been down this road before. The rate of failure is too high. We're talking to Derek Lowe. You can read him at Science in the Pipeline, his blog, or follow him on Twitter. Derek, as we consider the success and efficacy of the viruses, we know now of the great mutations underway. Yeah. Which vaccines do you think will be most conducive to being updated to address the mutations? Yeah, that's a really good question. Now, the two mRNA ones, Pfizer and Moderna, can be updated pretty quickly. And there's another one that we haven't talked about yet, which is Novavax. 
Novavax also uses a little bit of an older technique where you just give the virus proteins themselves. And the key is that they are doing it by a little bit more updated method where they're, they're not, you know, growing them in, in chicken eggs like the old flu virus. They're actually making the proteins by the same techniques that we make proteins in biotech research. In their case, they're growing them in insect cells, of all things. Sounds crazy, but it's a system that we've used for 20 or 30 years. At any rate, Novavax could also turn on a dime because in both cases, you just need to put in the sequence of the new protein that you want to vaccinate against. So they could you know, program that into the DNA and RNA that they're using for Pfizer and Moderna or use that same sequence to make the right protein for Novavax, and they could turn it around pretty quickly. What is the status of Novavax around the world and in the U.S.? They have just released some clinical data, like within the last week. And they released data on trials in the U.K. and South Africa. And they have an ongoing trial in the U.S. that's being run by the NIH, but that one's not finished yet. So we're waiting to see if they're going to submit to the FDA for emergency use authorization based on just that UK and South Africa data, or if they're going to wait to finish the US one. But it looked pretty good. Against the classic coronavirus, it had about 90% efficacy. Now, the interesting thing was because they were in South Africa, they were able to see what it was like against the variant down there which we call B1351, and the efficacy went down to about 50 or 60% against that one. I would guess that I would think all the vaccines are probably going to do something similar. They're probably all down there in the 50 or 60% efficacy range against that variant. It sounds as though you believe that the two mRNA and the Novavax are maybe best positioned of the vaccines we know of to be updated in that manner yeah, to address exactly. the variants? Exactly. I think those are the ones that will have the shortest turnaround. The ones using the adenovirus vectors, you can do it, but it's going to be a bit longer process because you have to get that genetic information into the adenovirus. And that's a little bit different process. You've got an extra step or two in the manufacturing. Now, once you get it going, the manufacturing is probably a little more straightforward than the mRNA ones. But the Novavax manufacturing is also pretty straightforward comparatively. So yeah, I'd give those the advantage. What about the inactivated ones? I mean, are they equipped at all to deal with variants? Whoosh, you're going to have to grow a lot of the variant virus, first off. And then you're going to have to try to inactivate it. And every time you do that, it's a completely different project. It really is because the inactivation is, well, to be honest, it's not really well defined. As I mentioned, you use heat or some kind of reactive compound and you probably get a lot of different modifications in there. In the end, they end up you know, making the virus incompetent to reproduce, basically to kill it. Although between you and me, I don't think viruses are actually alive. But you end up with this killed virus, but it's probably a mixture of a lot of different kinds of killed virus. So if you do that on one of the variants, you're going to get a different mixture. You're going to have to test it all again. 
that is probably what explains and vindicates the U.S. approach to use the experimental novel mRNA, anticipating the variants, right? Yeah, it's it's something that people had in mind because viruses mutate. I mean, this is not some weird, unexpected situation here. Viruses always mutate. You see how flu mutates every year. It's got a different way of doing it, so it's kind of guaranteed to come back different. But we're putting selection pressure on this virus. That is, in an evolutionary sense, we are trying to kill it. Every person that gets infected, their immune system is trying to kill it off. And anything that survives that attack is going to be able to multiply more. The longer we go, the more we're going to see things that are better at evading our immune systems, unfortunately. Is it fair to say also that a coronavirus in the future, a year from now, a decade from now, may not become a pandemic because of the existence of these mRNAs? Specifically, how similar would a new virus, not a mutant of this one, but a wholly new one, yeah. how, how different would it have to be in order not to work? on Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNA platforms? Yeah, that's a good question because we this is our third time to have a coronavirus outbreak in the human population. First time was 2003 with SARS. And then a few years later, the Middle East respiratory virus MERS came up. Both of those are in this exact same coronavirus family. In fact, this one is pretty close to the 2003 SARS. So if there's going to be something really different, whew, you really you don't know what that's going to be. It'd have to come out of left field. We haven't seen anything like that. Let's ask you about MERS and SARS. Do you think sure. that this vaccine would give people equipment to deal with those should they become persistent? Good thing is that MERS was fairly easy to stamp out because it was not very transmissible in the end. SARS was a little bit more of a worry at the time, and a lot of people started some antiviral drug research, and there was a lot of vaccine work done. In fact, all that research on the 2003 SARS virus really, really gave us a leg up on this one. We've been, we've been really fortunate to have done all that work and all that preparation. It saved us a lot of time and told us about a lot of dead ends that we didn't have to go down. So we got lucky. But so what you're asking in general is, what if we don't get lucky? What if we get something that we don't have that leg up and we have to do it from a standing start? Yeah, that's not going to be too much fun because you could pick the wrong protein or proteins to try to vaccinate with and find that they don't work very well, or sometimes they even cause trouble. There's this thing called antibody-dependent enhancement that's very bad news. So, yeah, if we get something that's totally out of left field, you're not going to see us beating it back within a year, I'm afraid. This new technology, though, theoretically would be deployed or at least experimented with in the case of other coronaviruses. I think you're suggesting if it was not in the family of coronavirus, that it would be trickier, if not unachievable, to use oh, yeah. the platform. But with well, just COVID's, you know, future coronaviruses, we we have a leg up and and a strong position now. Yeah. Well, 
even inside the coronaviruses, it's a big family and there's a lot of different ones and some of them infect differently than others. I can give you an example with SARS when they started trying to develop a vaccine for that one. The first thing they tried was not the spike protein that everyone's been hearing about for months. They tried another one, the N protein, which stands for nucleocapsid. That looked like a better bet for a vaccine. But then when they got to the point of trying that in animal models, it turns out animals that were vaccinated with that, when they were re-exposed to the virus, some of them came down with it and got much sicker the second time. And that's that antibody-dependent enhancement. It raised a kind of antibody that would stick to the virus but wouldn't kill it and, in fact, made it easier for it to get into cells, the opposite of what you want. That's one of those dead ends that we managed to avoid. We probably would have done the same thing this time if we didn't know about it, and we would have wasted months, I don't know how long, making a vaccine that would have made people sicker. Never before in human history, is it fair to say, Derek, have there been, has there been such a multiplicity of vaccines to combat a single epidemic or pandemic or disease? Oh, and yeah. as a chemist, I'm wondering what your perspective is on what the effect will be on the human body and genome, if to the extent that it has an effect on our chemistry internally, to have all these various vaccine regimens being deployed simultaneously. Well, I got to say, I actually am thrilled that we have as many different vaccine platforms attacking this disease as we do. I'm really happy about it because, you know, drug discovery has a pretty high failure rate. Vaccines against infectious disease, it's a better success rate than many areas, but still got a pretty high failure rate. We just saw Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline have to back off of their vaccine candidate and retrench. We just saw Merck drop two of their programs. And these are some big, competent companies. And theirs just didn't work out. So I'm glad that we've had as many shots on goal as we have. That's what's, that's what's going to save us. Now, as far as the effect on humans, I'm really not too worried about it. Vaccines in general are pretty safe. Now, there have been some things like the swine flu vaccination program in 76 brought on a higher rate of a side effect called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which you can get after getting infected with viruses too. But the fact that the coronavirus doesn't seem to be causing Guillain-Barre by itself makes me think the vaccine should be fine with that. We don't know yet, Derek, right, if you are vaccinated, if you are able to transmit the virus, because of course you can still contract it. The idea is to mitigate hospitalizations and you know, profoundly bad infections. But when do you expect we will know scientifically, as a matter of fact, whether or not vaccinated people can tra- transmit it? Yeah, that's a big question. And we got a little bit of data on that in the last few days with another report from AstraZeneca in Oxford. But I think where we're going to get some really solid data on that is from Israel. They have been aggressively vaccinating a good large percentage of their population, and they're still going on. So that's going to be our experiment right there. We'll have to watch the Israeli epidemiological data. And I suspect what we're going to see is that it really does knock down transmission. We're going to see that R naught, as the as the epidemiologists say, start to drop. So yeah, Israel is going to be the first place you see it. 
the AstraZeneca data showed that you have lower viral loads in people across the board. That really should mean lower transmission. There's a chance that it doesn't, but I'm willing to draw a line between those two points and say that should do it. Is there any possibility that because of these new technologies that one or more of the vaccines could actually uh, create a response in the human body or impact the, the, the mutation of the virus um, that could be problematic. You're basically arguing that the contention that the multiplicity of vaccines could be problematic is generally wrong. But That's right. is, there, is there any any question you have about the probability that the vaccine's integration into the human body could then have some kind of spillover effect Mm. on transmission or, you know, even just long-term human genetics? No, nothing in genetics because even the mRNA ones cannot turn around and be integrated into our genome. It, It just does not work in that direction. Now, there is one DNA vaccine that's still under research by a company called Inovio, and that always has been a worry with the idea of a DNA vaccine, but there are no DNA vaccines on the market yet. But the ones we have now will have no effect on human genetics at all. That I am sure of. Now, what I would be more worried about is if we didn't have all these vaccines, because the variants that we were talking about, the South African one and the British one, B117, it looks like those came from individuals, maybe immunocompromised, who had had the coronavirus infection for a long time. They'd been fighting it off for weeks, maybe even months, not quite able to kill it. And that put continuous evolutionary pressure on the virus and their bloodstream to find ways to evade the immune system and the antibodies And that's why when these things emerged, they had a whole list of mutations in them. They skipped a lot of steps out of our sight because they happened inside single patients who were holding on to this disease for months. So that's what you don't want. You want something that will come in, kill this thing off when a person is infected. And that's basically what the vaccines are doing. The more, the merrier. With respect to a therapeutic that is not on the market, but some kind of therapeutic, whether it is the replication and greater manufacturing of the monoclonal antibodies, the fact is that those limited supplies have been used for people who have tested positive in high-ranking VIP situations for the most part. But the, the ultimate hope is that we don't only have a population that is vaccinated, but that there is some plausible chemistry that would enable, you know, a a pill like an antibiotic pill to function for high risk as well as medium and low risk individuals. That is, that's true, but that's really tough to do for viral infections. Because when you think about it, the only two viral infections that we can really fight off by taking, you know, oral medications like that are HIV, which we can bring to a standstill. We can fight to a draw and keep people alive and hepatitis C, which we can cure. 
And that's it. Viruses are actually very hard to get rid of. So I am actually, I'm all for the vaccines. I think that's the only way we're going to get rid of this thing. Now, Merck is working on a small molecule drug. We should be hearing about that, oh, maybe around March or so. They've got a small molecule drug that might be a decent antiviral, but I will go ahead and put money down and say there is not going to be a single compound, a single pill regimen that's going to wipe out something like the coronavirus, not by itself. And would you say that the chemistry makes that the reality, that that it's basically an immutable fact that that will be the case? Maybe not immutable, but that's where I'd put my money because I have actually worked on antivirals myself as a medicinal chemist. And, you know, look at all the viruses we have out there. And there's one of them that we can fight to draw and one of them we can cure through small molecules. I feel like I'm letting down the side because I'm a small molecule drug development guy. But anyone who's done it will tell you that, honestly, immunology, basically vaccines are the way to go if you're trying to get rid of viruses. Small molecules can get you only so far. Eric Lowe, thank you so much for your insight today. Glad to.